I'd like just to read a few verses from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And it's entitled, The Sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now one greater than Jonah is here. And along with that, you may find it helpful just to have uh, the book of Jonah open again at page uh, 927, because I'll be making some references to the text itself and you may find it helpful just to follow. Let's just pray together. Gracious Father, as we turn now to your word, we pray you might enable us to grasp more fully the meaning of grace and the difference that should make to the way we live. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The first reference to Jonah in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. There we are told that Jonah was the son of Amittai, a prophet from Gath-Heber, that is in the vicinity of Galilee. If that's the case, Jonah then lived around the year 780 to 753 years before the Lord Jesus. That's just a little later than Elijah and around the same time as Elijah's successor, Elisha. The book of Jonah is a short story, and we're going to attempt to look at it in one complete sweep, because that's how it was meant to be told. Now, there are lots of interesting things for us in the text, but just uh, before we begin, I wonder if I can just give you a mental diagram. It's in the form of a triangle that I think will help you understand this story. It's an illustration of the three great Focuses, or is it foci? I can never remember. Uh, somebody will be able to tell me afterwards, which are found here. If you can imagine at the top of the triangle, God, and then over here, Jonah, and here, Nineveh. And this triangle tells us how Jonah related to God, and how God related to Nineveh, and how Nineveh related to Jonah, and how Jonah related to God. There's there's a very great uh, interrelationship there among the three. Now, we're not going to make that specific, but it's nonetheless invaluable for us just to have as a point of reference as we look at this intriguing and important book. Now, of course, if we were to mention the word Jonah, there's only generally one other uh, thing that comes to our minds. You know those sorts of games, name the partner. I say bread and you're supposed to say butter or David and Goliath, Sodom and Gomorrah, Laurel and Hardy. You get the idea. 
and we say Jonah, and the reply is, and the whale, exactly. Um, and so uh, the strange thing is that the whale isn't even mentioned in the text. Isn't that odd? Um, you mentioned one thing, and the association is so strong. And as we can see from chapter 1, verse 17, it's in fact a great fish. Far from the great fish or the whale being terribly prominent in this story, it's actually only mentioned in three verses in the entire book because the great fish isn't in fact the focus of this story at all, but the major focus is on the great God. Or to put it more specific, the focus of this story is not a whale, but it's the great God's compassion on the great city of Nineveh. That's where the focus of this story is to be found. God's great compassion for the great city of Nineveh, not upon the great fish. In fact, I think it was the Reverend uh, Jim Philip uh, who once said, the great fish is, is in actual fact a bit of a red herring. Um, because there's so, so much disproportionate interest uh, on the great fish that we fail to understand the great God's great compassion for the great city. Or people have looked so hard for the great fish that they fail to see the great God in the process. Now the book of Jonah has two very clear halves and uh, you'll, you'll find it interesting to see. Strangely enough, the first half is chapter 1 and 2 and the second half which is in parallel, is chapters 3 and 4. And they have a very similar structure. Uh, let me show you, if you happen to have the text before you. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So the first half begins with the Lord's commissioning of Jonah. And the second half begins with the Lord's recommissioning of Jonah. Now after we read of God's commissioning in chapter 1 verse 3, we then read of Jonah's reaction to that call. What is it we read in verse Three of chapter 1. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Whereas in chapter 3 verse 3 we are told Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And then after Jonah's reaction to God's call can you see the consequences of the prophet's actions. In chapter 1 verses 4 through to 16 we are told he went down to Joppa, heading for Tarshish. And he set sail in order to flee from the Lord. Now cast your eyes over to chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. This time Jonah went to Nineveh, a very important city, uh, located, by the way, on the east bank of the river Tigris, on the opposite side of the river from present-day Mosul in modern-day Iraq. And there he proclaimed... Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. 
Now, in chapter 1, verse 17, that is the last verse of the first chapter, we are told that the Lord provided a great fish to rescue the disobedient prophet from the depths of the sea. And in chapter 3, verse 10, that's the last verse of the third chapter, we read that the Lord had compassion and did not bring upon the Ninevites the destruction he had threatened. In other words, the disobedient Ninevites were also rescued, even as Jonah had been rescued. One was rescued from the depths of the, the sea, the others had been rescued from the depths of their sin. Both had been saved. All right, now can you see this very deliberate structure in this book? And at the end of the first section in chapter 2, verse 9, we have Jonah's reaction. He was full of gratitude for the salvation that God had given to him uh, from the depths of the sea. Uh, and chapter 4, verse 9, we have the conclusion of the second section with Jonah's reaction to God's salvation for the Ninevites, and, and we're told he resented that salvation. It's all very carefully paralleled and deliberately so. So now that we've said that, let's turn to the story itself. And it is the story of the Jewish prophet called by God to leave the comforts of his native Israel and to preach in the city of Nineveh, located in the northern Mesopotamian part of the powerful Assyrian Empire. I guess it would be a bit like Moshe from present-day Tel Aviv being told by God to go into contemporary Gaza City and to preach there Judaism in a hotbed of militant Islam. Uh, do you think he'd do it? Even worse than Billy from Newtonards Road asked to go to Anderson's town to proclaim the message in Republican territory. It was no easy assignment. Now do you have some empathy with Jonah? When he was told to do this, he didn't want to do it. It was, it was, it's very easy for us to criticize Jonah for being a reluctant prophet. But we just have to try to get inside the mind of this man who, who knew for himself what a threat the Assyrians had been and uh, what a national menace they would be uh, in the future. No wonder uh, Jonah chose to flee from God and run in the very opposite direction and jump on a ship heading for Spain, the furthest away place, diametrically opposed uh, to uh, the place he was supposed to go. Uh, God told Jonah to go that way, so Jonah turned and instead went that away. So this then is an account of a prominent leader in the church of the Old Testament resisting the will of God. I wonder if you can see uh, uh, what uh, happened here in this story. The Lord, the Lord spoke to a variety of different uh, inanimate objects. The Lord said to the wind, blow, and the wind blew. And the Lord then said to the fish, uh, vomit up uh, Jonah on the dry land. So the fish vomited Jonah on the dry land. The Lord later on said to the vine in, uh, in, in uh, uh, 
Nineveh grow? And what did the vine do? Well, it grew. Uh, later on in the story, God said to the sun, scorch, um, use your, your shining blazes. And, and what did the sun do? Well, it blazed hot. And then God later said to the worm, chew, chew the vine, chew the gourd. And what did it do? It did exactly as it was told. And the Lord said to Jonah the prophet, go to the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah said to the Lord, get lost. Everything in creation that God spoke to obeyed. Everything in the animal and plant kingdom did precisely what the Lord God commanded them to do, except for one, the stubborn, disobedient, resentful, human believer, Jonah. Incredible, isn't it? And yet, is this not an accurate insight into the heart of human beings? A correct observation as to the obtuseness of the human mind. Yes, even the mind of followers of the Lord Jesus. For when God calls, we have to make a decision. Are we going to obey or are we going to resist the Lord God? To do what God has in mind or else to reject it? But in resisting, uh, the book of Jonah would, would also tell us that there is only pain and unfruitfulness. As we can see from the rest of the story, by resisting the will of God, there are far-reaching consequences. Consequences for ourselves, certainly. But not only for ourselves, but also for others. Because by our obedience, we will either bless other people or we will hinder them from receiving the blessing that God has in store. Now can I just say a word in this, if I may, that the time for Christian people to determine to do the will of God is not at the moment when God speaks. Does that surprise you? The time for Christian people to determine to do the will of God is not at the moment when God speaks, but is long prior to that moment. If we're of the view that we say, I'll wait until I hear God's voice and then decide whether or not I will obey, then we will probably limit how far God may or may not have a say in our lives. The Christian way is not to wait to decide, but rather is to determine now to obey when God speaks. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's only when we're determined to obey that when God speaks, we are willing to do whatever he asks of us. Well, as we've seen, God spoke and Jonah resisted. He resisted so completely that instead of trusting in God to take him to Nineveh, Jonah did what no self-respecting Jew would do, and that was trust instead to the Phoenician sailors to take him all the way across the Mediterranean to Tarshish. Jonah would rather place his trust in polytheistic foreigners and sail in the sea, the sea that Hebrews feared rather than trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
whose ways are pure and right and clean. You probably know that there are many famous Jewish uh, people in science and technology and in all sorts of different aspects of life, but name to me one famous Jewish sailor. There is a historic antipathy between the Jewish people and the sea. And that's why in the book of Revelation, we are told that in heaven there is no sea because it is historically the place of turmoil. It is the place where you resist going. Well, where did Jonah choose, choose to do? Instead of trusting in the living God, he trusted foreigners to take him on the sea. That's how far he went away from God. So down he went to Joppa, modern-day Jaffa. And, and that, by the way, is precisely what the Hebrew says in chapter 1, verse 3. He went down to Joppa. Because when we run away from God, it is the start of a downward spiral. And this was the start of his journey down. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us he went down to Joppa. Chapter 1, verse 5 tells us he went down below the deck of the ship. Chapter 2, verse 6 tells us he sank down into the depths of the sea. How very different that was from what he had been told to do in chapter 1, verse 2, where he had been told to rise up and go to Nineveh. And chapter 1, verse 6, rise up and call on God. Jonah, running away from God, did not rise up. Instead, he went down. Well, is that anybody here today? Running away from God, resisting his will for your life. In disobedience, do you know that yourself, you're going down. Down to depths that you could not have imagined yourself to, to sink to. Well, the Lord Jesus wants you to rise up. And can you see that the road to recovery is simple? Not easy, perhaps, but nonetheless plain. It's the road to obedience. The way to recovery is to start doing right now what you know God is calling you to do and to stop doing what you know you ought not to be doing. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. And so in order to bring Jonah to his senses, God, we are told, sent a great wind and a violent storm arose, chapter 1, verse 4, so that the ship upon which Jonah was escaping started to break up. All the sailors, we are told, were afraid and each cried to his own God. The pagan sailors were crying out for divine mercy. But where was Jonah? In verse 5, fast asleep down below deck. Isn't that incredible? In the face of pagan unbelieving crying out for divine assistance, far from calling upon God for mercy, Jonah was sleeping. 
Now, the next little part of the story is both astonishing and moving because here we witness the kindness and the generosity of pagan unbelievers that confounds the selfishness and miserliness of Jonah the believer. Can you see the extent to which the sailors went to rescue the ship and preserve the life of Jonah? They did their very best, verse 13, to row back to the land, but they could not. Uh, The astonishing thing, of course, is not really how generous and thoughtful unbelievers can be. But the thing that is truly shocking is how abrasive and how selfish many believers can be. How is it that in the face of need, it's it's often the non-Christian who displays the characteristics of Jesus rather than the believer? What an indictment. Well, that was the case here. The Phoenician sailors did everything they possibly could so that they could preserve the life of the Hebrew paying guest. But Jonah, so unconcerned, completely oblivious to the fact that it was his fault that they were all in danger of their lives, that Jonah was asleep. I wonder... Uh, If you noticed, as Michael was reading to us from chapter 1, verse 8, that series of questions which the sailors then put to Jonah. Jonah, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble on us. Chapter 1, verse 8. What should we do with you? Where do you come from? What is your country? From which people are you? And more potently, do you you see their uh, response to his reply? Verse 10, what have you done? Because now at this stage, they knew that he was running away from the Lord. Penetrating questions, which of course elicited a response, which we can read in chapter 1, verse 9. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and the dry land. In response to all these questions, here we have Jonah's testimony. This is who I am. This is what defines me. I am a believer. I know precisely the God who I should speak to. I am a believer in the one true God who made all things, who is in charge of all things. No wonder then we are told that the sailors were terrified. Here was someone who believed in God and was knowingly running away from God. It was in defiance. Of the creator of heaven and earth. It is an awesome thought. One incidentally. Which touched the sailors so deeply. For having then done what Jonah requested them to do. That was pick him up and throw him into the sea. Verse 16 tells us. At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Astonishing. Now, if that was the unbeliever's response to Jonah's evangelistic testimony when he was disobedient, What do you think might be unbelievers' response in Nineveh to Jonah's evangelistic message when he is in the will of God? And of course, chapter 3 tells us 
(laughs) It's a response of unconditional repentance. Let everyone give up their evil ways, chapter 3, verse 8, and their violence. And God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways and God had compassion on them, chapter 3, verse 10. Well, chapter 2 is the prayer of Jonah from inside the fish. It's a prayer that deserves careful study all, all on its own, so I'm not going to touch on it today. But suffice to say that it is a prayer of repentance. It is the prayer of repentance, not of an unbeliever, but the prayer of a hitherto disobedient and now chastened believer. Jonah was down in the depths of despair. You hurled me into the deep. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters were at my throat and seaweed was wrapped around my head. And yet those who cling to worthless idols, verse 8, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I will sing a song of thankfulness and will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good because salvation, verse 9, comes from the Lord. And at that we are told the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Now just before we conclude this story, this prayer brings us to the text that I brought to you at the very start of the sermon from Matthew 12, 39. Because we read there what Jesus describes as the sign of Jonah. Strangely, Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet to whom Jesus ever compared himself. So if Jesus thinks this is important, so ought we. The Pharisees, the other religious leaders of Jesus' day, demanded to see a miraculous sign. They wanted him to perform for them, but Jesus would have none of it. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign but none will be given to you other than the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what was that sign? What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? Sufficient for wicked people to repent. And the answer is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the sign of Jonah. Because even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, both Jonah's experience and that of Jesus involved a punishment for sin. In Jonah's case, it was judgment on his own wrong. In other words, it was the rightful penalty for his own rebellion. Whereas in Jesus' case, it was chastisement for our guilt. In other words, he bore what ought to have been on our shoulders. In Jonah's case, his miraculous deliverance was like a kind of resurrection from the depths of hell. Whereas in Jesus' case, it was actually a resurrection from the depths of death and destruction. In Jonah's case, his rescue was like a a form of personal salvation pointing forward to the the grace that would be extended to the Ninevites. Whereas in Jesus' case, his resurrection led, in fact, to the salvation of all who would repent and believe 
Yes, even for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Even for Arabs as well as anybody else. Yes, even for people of a different political or religious persuasion from us. And so in Jonah chapter 3, we read how God turned away from his fierce anger and relented. And on account of the sign of Jonah, had compassion on Nineveh and did not bring upon that great city the destruction that had been threatened. Now, wouldn't that be a wonderful place for us to conclude? A perfect place to end. Jonah had learned his lesson. Nineveh had repented. They all lived happily ever after. And you and I can now go back home and have our Sunday lunch. But, chapter 4, verse 1. It's not how it concludes. Because there we read, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. O oh Lord, is this not what I said would happen when I was still at home? Who cares about your word when this is what I said would take place? That's why I wanted to go away to Tarshish. Because I knew, verse 2, that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I didn't want the Ninevites to escape from destruction. I wanted them to be doomed. Imagine railing against God like that. In other words, Jonah loved the grace of God as long as it was for me. But not for them. Jonah loved to be saved himself. As long as people he did not like of a different political or religious persuasion were not included in that number. Jonah loved the grace of God when it rescued him from the belly of the fish. But resented it when it stretched out and rescued pagan foreigners who weren't like him. So what did God do? God had to instruct this slow-to-be-taught prophet. He provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah and gave him much-needed shade over his poor head and eased his discomfort from the blazing gaze of the scorching sun. And Jonah loved the vine. But during the night, God provided a worm to chew the plant so that the next day it withered and died. And Jonah, we are told, was furious that God should do such a thing to him. He was angry enough to die, chapter 4, verse 9. But the Lord God said to him, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people in it who cannot tell their right hand from their left, 
and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, you say, that's a bit of an anticlimax. Imagine a grown man being bothered about a vine. It's just too juvenile for words. My friends, let me tell you a story. Outside the window of our kitchen in the manse, there's a little flower bed. It contains a variety of spring plants and a few, just a few, little snowdrops. One here, another there. Our children know to avoid it because their father cherishes it. But not so long ago, our next-door neighbour's kids climbed over the fence and with our younger two children played some racing games in the garden, displacing one of these little spring flowers in the process, and Father was none too pleased. Look, I said, brandishing the withered plant the next day, look what these bothersome children have done. And do you know what the Lord replied to me? Frank, you have been concerned about this flower. But Gaza has more than half a million boys and girls and men and women. Should I not be more concerned about them? We pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, what miserable wretches we are. Forgive us over the things that concern us. And have mercy on us over those things that cause us not a thought. Grant us your perspective today, we pray. For the sake of Jesus, who died to save us. Amen.